Hello and welcome again to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And I am Ian Woodington. Um, before we get into today's episode, uh, any anything we've seen recently that you want to recommend or talk about? Well, Maybe not I, recommend? Well, I don't know that I'd, I'd recommend them. I've been watching Junk this week. Uh, a couple of... Not so great movies uh, on Hulu. Uh, I, well, I've been going through a bit of a Nick Cage thing recently. Well, that's so, already that's yeah, already. Yeah. You know, these things happen yeah. every once in a while. You got to cleanse the palate with you know, you got to cage it up. You you can only know the sweet to the sour. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, sweet is never as sweet without the sour. Yep. Uh, Mom and Dad. I I don't even know what this is. I oh can't my wait. god! It's directed by I, I didn't even care enough to look who the director was, but it's directed by one half of the uh, Mark Neveldine, Brian Taylor team, uh, the guys who did one of my absolute favorite guilty pleasures of all time, Crank, with Jason Statham. Never seen Crank. Are you kidding me? Crank or Transporter? Jason Statham does nothing for me. Uh, me either. But you owe it to yourself. You treat yourself and see Crank because the movie is just insanity. Pure, unadulterated insanity. I did, okay, I did not. I did not realize Mom and Dad was that recent. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, it seemed like it almost got like a direct to to streaming release. I don't know that it had much of a theatrical run. Anyway, so it's it's this inexplicable thing. You know, parents are that that instinct, that maternal or paternal instinct, to care for your children, kind of goes sideways. In a really big way, like parents start, they have an uncontrollable desire to murder their children. Wonderful. Yeah, right? But it's done in a, in a lighthearted, comedic way. I'll tell Melissa about that. I'm oh, sure she'll, she'll love it. run wild with it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's essentially the whole movie is these these two kids, they're trying to like batten down the hatches in the house. And, oh, like, my God. I think I've actually remembered the trailer for this. Do you see the this? trailer for it? Yes. And Cage goes full Cage. And I think people know what I'm talking about when I say full Cage. If you don't know this... You are an insane person. Yeah, I, he is. He's a national treasure. You like that pun? You can have that one. That's my gift from me to you. Um, <laughs> anyway, so he go. He does get to go full cage. There's this brilliant sequence, which is actually a flashback. You know, their their marriage is uh, falling apart. I can't recall the name of the uh, actress that plays his wife. Oh, marriage. I believe I just looked that. I believe it's Selma Blair. Is it Selma Blair? I think it's Selma Blair. Yeah, Which, I think right how, they're like decades apart in age, but... Oh, yeah. But, you whatever. know, whatever. Hollywood. Yep. Um, so, yeah, he, he has a moment, and it's in the trailer. He goes full cage. They're down in the basement. He's setting up. He's trying to do... Because they set him up to be kind of a selfish character. He seems like he's a good dad, but she has this kind of chip on her shoulder about him being selfish. I mean, he's still got the same car that he had in high school that he spent years and God knows how much money keeping going. Uh, he's building like a, a rec room. She thinks it's a man cave, but he's like, no, this is like a family room. And he's he builds. There's this brilliant sequence. Like the best part of the movie, he builds a pool table from scratch in this in this really cool montage. Cool. And then they have a fight, and he smashes it to pieces. He goes full cage, of course, on this pool table. It is it's a, a wonder to behold. If if you've never seen Cage go full cage, could so, I could I say Cage one more time? I, dude, I, I I hope so. So now, now wait, but now is this a? Are you? Would you tell people to go see this movie? I mean, if you got nothing better, to, if you if you already have a Hulu, I wouldn't pay for it. But if you're already paying for Hulu, okay. it's on there. 
just you know it's is this not like a get drunk or high kind of thing and then watch it yeah or or, or could is this, is it's this not even gonna, sober it's not gonna hurt okay all right, all right. it might actually benefit <laughs> maybe okay it, it's you know it it seems like it is that kind of direct to video kind of territory but there sure. are, there are some flashes i'm not going to say of brilliance in it but there are some flashes of oh this is interesting let's go with this and then they don't uh, well, the, the other one, because I did these a couple of days apart, the other one was uh, Tag, which I did want to just... The the Jason Bateman? Uh, no, no, Bateman isn't in it. Uh, Ed Helms. Well, oh, it is, wait, Ed, Ed Helms and, and John Hamm. John Hamm. Oh, yeah. and Jeremy Renner. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, that's Renner. Right. Uh, it's actually, I think it's got like less than a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that's kind of unfair. It's actually not a bad movie. I mean, you're expecting kind of the hangover, but with these, you know, adults that have been playing this game of tag sure. for 30 some odd years. And it's based on a group of real guys from Eastern Washington. Yeah. I, I heard and that you do get story. to see them at the end, which is kind of cool. But the movie, there's a lot of heart to it, surprisingly. I haven't seen that, it yet. That one, I, I probably wouldn't recommend Mom and Dad, but I would recommend Tag. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. What have you been watching this week? Well, one that I d- actually definitely want to recommend that, you know, because I'm also, well, I'm a, I listen to a lot of film podcasts. I just, I just something that I like to listen to, and it seemed like this in the last couple months, every film podcast was doing Midnight Run. Really? Yes. I had never seen it before. Neither have I. So I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, and it's I kept hearing how this is like De Niro's first comedic film. So probably the beginning of the end for De Niro then. Uh, no, because this was right before Goodfellas. This was '88. Okay. So he's still in his, you know, he hasn't quite gone into, you know, meet the Fockers. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Midnight Run is. Really good. Who's the who's the no? There's he's a cop. So he's no he's a bounty hunter. He okay. used to be a cop, and the the essential plot is that he is gonna do this one big what would you call it hunt? That's not right. Yeah. But he's gonna go get this one guy, his bounty. Yes, and uh, it's gonna be a big it's gonna be a big payday for him. This is like the one last job kind of. Thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, it totally is. Okay. Yeah, and there's a, I mean, and Charles Grodin plays the guy that he's gonna go get. Which, if you don't know, Charles Grodin. For like our generation, he's the dad in uh, Beethoven. Oh, so yeah, this film has got legitimately written all over it. Well, okay, but hold on. But the the side characters <laughs> yeah. are great. Yafet Koto, Joe Pantoliano, Dennis Farina. Oh, um, I love Dennis Farina. Dennis Farina plays the bad guy, and he is like the quintessential mobster bad guy in well, this yeah, movie. Yeah, no, that's he made an entire career out of doing nothing but that, which yeah. is great because he was actually a, a Chicago, Chicago cop. cop. Yep, yeah, exactly. Uh, he actually he wasn't like their um, consultant for the movie, but he gave a lot of you know yeah. feedback and, and advice and stuff but it's and just, i love yafet koto as well oh he and, and he's playing he's playing that like the straight man comedic stuff and a oh, lot okay. of stuff happens to him okay um it is here's the thing it's ridiculous there's a lot of ridiculous things that happen but it's so funny that you just don't you don't care and there's actually a lot of heart to it there, there's a scene where he has to go where de niro has to go and talk to his ex-wife and his daughter who he hasn't seen in like seven years and they almost don't recognize each other, hmm. and he's so now he's trying to get he's trying to get his 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 bounty across the country, and the daughter it's this really sweet scene where the daughter comes out and goes here's my babysitting money you know if it'll help you get gas and stuff and he can't take it and he's like no I can't take it sweetheart and it's this really like touching scene in the middle of this ridiculous you know shoot 'em up kind of comedy um I, I don't I won't go point by point but it's a treat. It's I I'd actually really recommend it. Um, okay. I mean I had to we had to rent it on on uh, on Amazon, but for like three bucks I'd, I'd rent yeah. it for three bucks. All right. I'd buy it. 
actually. If I saw it on sale somewhere, I would buy it. It's it's good. It's De Niro doing something that De Niro doesn't get to do, but still with that same De Niro seriousness. Yeah. It's it's great. I, I actually really highly recommend that movie. Yeah. Well, I'm sure being the the, uh, the method actor that he at least was back then, I'm sure he did actually go on actual bounty hunt. That wouldn't surprise oh, me to well, hear and that I, at and all. I won't I won't go into details, but like he of course did his stain and character thing throughout the shoot, which led to some pretty funny things that happened. Oh, I'm sure. And I wish it was in the books and we could go into further about it, but it's not. Um anyways, we're not here to talk about Tag or Midnight Run. Today's ep- episode is unfortunately still timely. Um, and the film we're talking about today is Boys in the Hood, written and directed by first-time director uh, John Singleton. Um, uh, nominated straight out of the gate. I think he still holds the record for... Well, he's the first African-American nominated for director, and he's also still the youngest. He beat Orson Welles by a couple of months Yeah, uh, as the youngest uh, person nominated 24. for best director. Yep. So, Ian, what was your familiarity with Boys in the Hood this time? This is only my second time seeing it. it. I saw it probably 10-ish years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, and I'll be honest, it didn't leave a huge impression on me. You know, I, I, I got to say, I probably saw it about that long ago as well. On, and honestly, it was because of this book, actually. was yeah. one, It was the reason I first uh, got first watched it. You know, I think it was too. I think, and it, it doesn't have two full pages. It, yeah, because it's got the full, the full photo. Right, and, then, and yeah. I think it did in the second edition as well. So I don't think they changed that up no, for, I don't, for this edition. I don't think they did either. I want to say this was, like, I watched something very similar to this movie before I watched it, and it sort of seemed naturalistic to, to go from the one that I had watched into this, and I really wish I could remember what it was, but it well, was something this, very similar to this. This, for me, is when I was going. I saw this in the midst of a, a big exploitation phase, because sure. I went through one of those about 10 years ago where I was just eating up, you know, stuff like Shaft and coffee and Superfly, and sure. I've, I've, I, there's a very special place in my heart for exploitation films. I just, they're just ridiculous fun. You know, there's a couple in here that I can't wait to get to, because I can't honestly say that I've seen one. Right, you, so. and you haven't seen... You haven't seen Shaft. Not, no, no, I've seen that that terrible, terrible Sam Jackson Shaft. Right. No, the original with Richard Roundtree is, it's just flat out badass. And the tagline for it was great, too. I think it was uh, faster than bullet and cooler than bond or something like that. All right, that's that's pretty sweet. A lot of first-time actors in this. I this was, Cuba, this was Cuba Gooding Jr.'s first movie. It was Morris Chestnut's first movie. It was Nia Long's first film. I think it was Regina King's first movie too, um, and it was was it Cubes? I believe it was, yeah. Okay. Um, and the movie was anchored by two um, wonder. I, I, th- I thought so. Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett play Trey's Cuba Gooding Jr.'s uh, parents in the film, and they anchor this thing. Lawrence Fishburne is a oh, he's the best part of the movie in this movie, and his relationship with Cuba Gooding Jr. Like I instantly buy that they're. I mean, they're only seven years apart in real, in real life, life. Yeah, but I. I buy that instantly, the father-son thing. Yeah, oh, totally. So in terms of plot, uh, you know, it's really not that complicated, and there's not really a, um, this character is trying to do this because of this. Um, It really is just sort of a slice of life of South Central Central L.A. in the early 90s. It starts in in 84, and there's a lot of allusions there to Stand By Me. I mean, there's even the shot of Oh, you want to go see a dead body. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, there totally is. Yeah, the four young kids walking down the train track on the seat. I mean, Singleton, I think, said he was really influenced by Stand By Me. That was a huge um, inspiration for getting the movie Oh, totally. Well, not even only that, but, I mean, he was right out of film school when he made this. So, you know he's... There was a lot of... I mean... 
this film has a, a total like directorial style about it, but you can tell it's kind of a hodgepodge of directors he admired. Yeah. It, it, in a way, it kind of felt Tarantino in that way, where he, he he's such a film person that he really, he just enjoys films and took, you know, oh, I like I liked this from this movie. I like this from Stand By Me and kind of yeah. found, and I mean, I am a fan of this phrase, hacks borrow, geniuses steal. I don't think there's any, there's no doubt that he took that right from Stand By Me. Yeah. Which, and no, and, and there's no shame in stealing. No, like if there, yeah. you see something you like, I, yeah, just do it. And then of course makes it more interesting, you know, for white boys in Oregon versus these four black kids in South Central. It, yeah. it was really interesting to see. I mean, we're jumping right kind of right into the part of the movie, but when these four white kids see this dead body, it like they it's like got this wave of of shock and their lives are changed. And what's so unfortunate and so I think powerful about that shot in Boys in the Hood is that they see this dead body and one of them says, Oh, it smells funny. And there's this sort of like there's this unfortunate air of Oh, this is this an everyday is, thing. This is every day. Yeah. So again, to take to take this this idea from another movie, but then of course recontextualize it for the the film that you're making. Um. So stat yeah. stat. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Singleton was kind of genius in that regard. Yeah. He's taking that and going, well, I'm going to do a realistic stand by me at least for the you know the few minutes of this movie. Totally. Oh, absolutely. In terms of stats, this film had I mean had a lot of great stuff happen for it. We're going to save part of this conversation for the end of this chunk. Uh, it was on the National Board of Views uh, top ten. It's this in the film, National Film Registry yep, now, two thousand and two. Yep. So it's preserved. We're always going to have this exactly. film. Exactly, and I think we should. Got a, a Writers Guild nomination for Best Original Screenplay that year. It was number twenty three um, in the box office um, between My Girl and Doc Hollywood. Oh God! Which I wish I could forget that. You've just gone deep in the recesses of my memory and pulled that thing out. And don't God worry, damn, don't that worry. That film is terrible. That that'll be the only time that we probably ever mention Doc Hollywood on this podcast. Rotten Tomatoes, That's got 96, 96, yeah, which is great. Um, uh, Ninety three audience, so yep. that levels out pretty nicely. We we so we talked about where it was in the box office that year, but more importantly, so it made fifty seven million dollars, and it actually beat. Point Break to the number one spot opening weekend, which is which is awesome. Yeah, because Point um, Break is garbage. It's it's something. Yeah, but the the thing that I want to bring up is that the budget for this movie was six point five million. So well, hell of a of, return. Yeah. So in terms of what it could do, it definitely made a return. And I'm sure it spoke to quite a lot of young people, maybe young people that didn't normally go out of their way to go to the movies. Yeah, absolutely. And, in the and, same way that Black Panther has done that. Now, yeah, right. totally, totally. So the Academy Awards. We talked about that John Singleton was the, not only is he the youngest person to be nominated for Best Director, but he is the only uh, black, ma- male or female, or not the only, he was the first. That's true. We've had a couple since then, Barry Jenkins and um, Stephen Queen. But anyway, so he was nominated personally for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay. Now the screenplay one I go back into on, I mean, uh, Callie, uh, Callie Corey won for... Um, Screenplay. My personal pick this year would have, for that year would have been Fisher King for original screenplay. Hold on, best original screenplay that year. Yeah. What did you What did you say? One best original screenplay in '91. Uh, Thelma and Louise. Oh, okay, Thelma. Okay, sorry. Oh, you said the person's name. Okay, sorry. Yeah. It's like, what are you even talking? Do you want to Do you want to redo that? No, no, no. I'll keep this. In. This is fun. Okay. Yeah. No, no. Thelma and Louise won. That's great. Yeah. 
Which, yeah, it deserved to. And Fisher King was up for original? Is that? Original screenplay. Yeah, I'd Fisher. probably go with that, too. I'd go Fisher King. I really do like Fisher King. Uh, yeah. Um, I only just saw that last year. And oh, it, it's so good. Me, I, too, actually. I, it's fantastic. Oh, I adored that film. Their Criterion release was incredible. It was. It, that's what I have. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Now, the director issue. Yes. You know what? I have a, I have a, I have a conversation I want to do after this, so I'm going to let you take point on, on this first thing. Well, it's... Uh, so, he, he lost to Jonathan Demme. For uh, Silence of the Lambs. And maybe, this will lead into what I want to say. So that year, our nominees for Best Director were Jonathan Demme for Silence of the Lambs, who won. uh, Barry Levinson for Bugsy. Which Um, I still haven't seen. Have you seen Bugsy? Yeah, I have. Is it good? Yeah, it's okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Oliver Stone for JFK. Which is my pick for who should have won. I would agree. And then um, the two other nominees for Best Director were um, Ridley Scott for Thelma and Louise, and then uh, John Singleton for Boys in the Hood. Ian, cut back to you. Uh, yeah, I watched the clip. So uh, Kevin Costner, and I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this than it needs to be, but Kevin Costner presents the award because he won for Dances with Wolves yep. previously, and yep. then it has the, the shot of the five guys. And, you know, the, the typical sort of, you know, polite thing to do is whether you feel that you deserve it or not is, you know, at least clap for, you know, the person that won. Instead, Singleton is visibly angry. He does this whole, like, fist thing. He's, like, he's, he's visibly pissed off anyway. Like I said, he I, doesn't hide that he's upset no. about it. Which is, you know... The arrogance of youth, I think we can put that down That's to. what I was going to yeah, say. I mean, and it's to get wrapped up in, in the whirlwind of your first movie, getting all this acclaim. You know, I can understand being upset that you didn't win, but I think you got to... I think show some, play the game a little bit Yeah, more. show some decorum. Yeah. Because he hasn't been nominated for anything since, right? Well, that leads to something I was going to bring up later, but it's perfect to bring up now. And I'm going to frame this question this way. What happened to John Singleton? Because here he is right out of the gate. I mean, we're talking about like a Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, Darren Aronofsky, like first movie, boom. It's a, it's a hit. It's yep. a hit. Got all this acclaim. I mean, it was a. It was a. I mean, it wasn't in the top ten of the box office, but it was a. It was a success in terms of what it made versus what it took to make it, and it was critically successful. And it got all these nominations and stuff, and so it was. It was great. I mean, this was. And it, a, it speaks about important things. Yeah, in a exactly. Part of the world that up until then, you know, everybody thinks L.A. They think the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood. No, no we're going to take you down into South Central, and we're going to show you real life. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes, so I, I have his his um, filmography right here. His next few films are uh, Poetic Justice, which I believe was the, t- Tupac was in that, I believe. Or that might have been Higher Learning. Anyway, he does, so he does Poetic Justice, Higher Learning, which are very similar themes. Um, again, they're fairly successful. But then here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read these next ones. Rosewood, from which I could read about, is fairly forgetful. The Sam Jackson Shaft, which... Uh, is pretty bad, is it? Because I've I've heard it's not bad. Oh, it's, it's I've, I've heard the bad. opposite. Oh, it's it's not good. Is it yeah. compared to the you've seen the original, right? No, I haven't. Okay, yeah. Um, he does uh, Baby Boy, which is the uh, Tyrese Snoop Dogg movie. Which oh, if you yeah. forgot that one, good on you. Um, he does Too Fast, Too Furious. He does Four Brothers, which I believe was. Marky Mark and Andre Three Thousand and Fifty Cent. You know, I didn't hate that movie. I didn't see it. It actually has. An incredible opening, like it's got an opening that pulls no punches. But his the, his last film that he directed is Abduction. Never heard of that. It. Uh, uh, what's the the guy from Twilight? The Wolf. He's in it. The 
if oh, you saw a trailer Taylor. or the cover, yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. would you would kind of vaguely remember it, and you'd be like, oh yeah, and that had like a twelve percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And so you want to talk about squandered potential? Well, yeah, that kind of like what what happened? I mean, I I, I don't. I don't think that there was any lack of creativity or ideas. I just, I just, I'm curious how you go from doing Boys in the Hood to abduction. No, you know, and it's not to say that and every not, director, not in, you know, there's not a ton of time has passed either. Ninety-one to uh, abduction, I want to say, was maybe 2013 or 14. Yeah, that's not a huge amount of time. Yeah, right. And there's some pretty big gaps, and he did, has directed some episodes of TV shows too. But yeah, you got to pay the bills. No, oh, to- yeah, you got to do what you got to do. So, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, you know, because I, I really do appreciate this movie, not just because it is an important movie, but as a, as a, as, as a film. It, it's a good, it's a well-made movie. Well, there are elements of it that are well-made. I'm going to jump right into the score, which undercuts this movie at every opportunity it has. The score is TV movie of the week. There are some great scenes. There are some incredible scenes of dialogue between especially... Lawrence Fishburne, Cuba Cooding Jr., and then the music just comes in and hams it all up. Well, it's like, it, it's almost like John Singleton watched Lethal Weapon and was like, hey, I like this jazzy kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it, it didn't it didn't work. It, it's not applicable here, man. Yeah. And actually, I found that the when the movie chose to, chose, when the movie decided to be silent was actually when it was its most effective. Absolutely. That scene where he yells, where Cuba Gooding Jr. yells, Ricky, and because the cars turn and he kind of looks up and the cars waiting for him and it, yeah. it cuts to silent and you see him, it cuts to silent and it goes to it goes to slow motion. Yeah, there should have been more of that. Oh. When it comes to a movie like this, score less would have been much more. I mean, I would say plot wise, even so, Cuba Gooding Jr. is definitely the lead of this movie. But I say the only real plot thing going on is that we've got this character Ricky, played by Morris Chestnut, who is uh, a pretty good football player and is basically. We're trying to see if he's going to be able to pass his SATs at yeah, a high he, enough um, a U- to get his scout. to get his to get yeah. his scholarship to go to college. And even though he doesn't seem like he's in t- like totally bright, at least when the recruiter asks, he asks him at one point, you know, what do you think you want to major in? You know, because you know there's a great chance that you won't be able to play professionally. He actually business or computers, and I'm like, yeah, good. At least you're thinking about it because yeah. you know a lot of people in your position would be like, no, no, I'm go, I'm going to get drafted. I'm going to play in the NFL. And the truth is. That's not the case for most college players. It's yeah, not the way the world works. And right? so I, you know, that that to me was that that was the the biggest plot point in the movie. And of course, his and it's his, one of my favorite scenes in the movie too. I really like when the UCLA uh, recruiter comes and sees that he has a kid, and there's that kind of look on his face, like, "Oh man, this is going to kill it for him." Yeah, like the fact that you know he lives where he lives, and he already has a son. Is this going to impact? Negatively yeah. on his chances of getting in. Oh, and you can tell, and that recruiter is totally rooting for him. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I'll, and there's nothing he can do, you know. And I gotta say too, because I, I, I think I wrote this down. Um, you only had to get a 700 on your SATs to to get that scholarship. That's less than half of what you can get. That's it. Almost feels like a gimme. Yeah. So I mean, he, it it sucks because he's definitely got some. It really seems like the world is at his fingertips and. And unfortunately, he's cut down way in too the prime of his life. Yeah, right. and there's that that stat at the top of the movie. Oh, here we go. It's 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 how that movie opens. It says one out of every 21 black American males will be murdered in their lifetime. Most will die at the hands of another black male, which is awful. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm assuming that statistic has only gotten worse 
Um, well, yeah, when you look at places like Chicago, I mean, it, well, it can't have gotten better. Yeah, and I don't know. I think it's in the book, uh, uh, Ava DuVernay's 13th, that documentary that's on Netflix, I think is actually in the book. And I I, I, I watched it when it came out, and I won't, I won't be able to pull the numbers, but I'm, I can almost guarantee that that number has gotten worse, which is just unfortunate that this movie that came out in 1991, that that stat has gotten worse and that obviously should not be the case. I also love, there are a couple moments in this movie that had some really nice, possibly overt symbolism, but I, I really liked it because we, we see that stat. We see that, that, and it ends with the most will die at the hands of another black male. And we get a hard cut to a stop sign. Yeah. I I love that. That's great. I loved that. And doesn't the stop sign have a bullet? It does. A hole in it as it well? It does, yeah, yeah. yep. Yeah, that was a great kind of way to open the movie. You know, another thing, too, about this movie that showed how unique and new it was to markets was that they didn't know how to market this film. Yeah, the trailer, the one trailer that I saw is a little all over the place. Well, apparently they were like, they wanted to, I can't believe I didn't write down who the the company was, if it was Paramount or Universal. Uh, Columbia. Columbia, thank you. Now owned by Sony. Yeah. But they, they really wanted to sell the, this is real, real streets, real L.A., and it's not that it the movie wasn't that but you know John Singleton's whole idea was you know yeah this is what it is but I want to I want to show that we can we can end this I want to show that this yeah this is horrible it's not a good thing in fact the movie ends with the title Boys in the Hood and then right underneath it Increase the Peace that's how the movie ends and that's what he wanted the tagline of the movie to be was Increase the Peace but that doesn't sell tickets, apparently, right. no, to the marketing team over there at Columbia. Yeah, on the poster, it was uh, Once Upon a Time in South Central Los Angeles. Yeah. Right? Which I think is actually a better title for the movie. That's I, uh, nothing wrong with Boys in the Hood. Yeah. But that's that's a great title. Well, and Boys in the Hood just make, I mean, you know, that's what, two or three years after the song comes out. So it's... it. It's not only directly applicable to pop culture, but sure. it is about boys in the hood. It, it was um, probably the better choice. I mean, it's definitely sure. It's the. You know, it's not Sergio it, Leone. It, yeah, no, it, it grabs the attention, but the the more thematic name, the more poignant name, would have been Once Upon a Time. Yeah, yeah. I've been talking a lot, Ian. Any anything you want to bring up? Yeah, um, I I'm a little disappointed. I really would have liked to have spent a lot more time with the the younger kids the, in the '84 section. Because I, I think the original title of the film was going to be Summer Summer of 84 and kind of set up that these, you know, their, their choices that they made as youths are going to impact them later in life. Yeah. Is maybe the intention of that title. But I really would have liked to have seen, I would have liked to have spent a lot more time with uh, the Doughboy character, especially after he does go to juvie yeah there i mean there's an opportunity there for even building further on the um trey and and furious relationship yeah um the the cuba gooding jr and the the uh lawrence fishman characters i mean it would have been I, i'm just hypothesizing but something that i would have liked to have seen was maybe you know trey sneaks out to go see his friend in juvie you know he's like his dad would probably be like hey you can't I want you to sever your ties with him. I don't want him to be an influence in your life anymore, but to have him still, to show some of that loyalty, because he, Trey in the movie is loyal almost to a fault. And so to kind of build on that a little more, I think there there should have been some more stuff with the kids as youths and building on those ideas. That's funny. I, I kind of, I disagree. I actually, I think I wanted less of the kids. Really? Yeah. 
I think I thought we got enough, and because um, because I'm in it at well, that point, and then it cuts to the barbecue, and I'm like, oh, all right, we're gonna have the barbecue sequence, and then reuniting. See, I, and, okay, I sh- I'll rephrase what I said. I actually think it's the right amount of time. Okay. I think when it cuts to them at that at the, at the barbecue, and it's it's what it's still boys sort of return right party. I'm like, yeah, that's that's about right. Okay, because I think it's gonna get I, I it's gonna get more real. I want to see them right. at this age, because and that's the thing too is I mean we forget that they're high school kids, you know, and and. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. High school is such a blip on the radar. But when you're in it, it, it seems it's like everything. It's, it is, yeah, it is important, and everything yeah. you do matters. And not just that, but then of course, you know, you got to bring in where they're living and what they're what they're putting up with, what they're dealing with. I remember there's the the when Cuba Gooding Jr. and Neil Long end up having uh, sex for the first time in the movie. It ends up it has this. There's like the R and B is playing, but then you the helicopter sound is still going on too. Oh, the sound design is one of the film that re- one of the things about this film that really elevates it. Oh, totally. And just yeah, this idea that they they constantly live with this. Well, my my favorite moment in the sound design comes when uh Trey defies Furious for the last time. And you know, uh Ricky has been killed. Spoiler alert. And we already mentioned it. Yeah. Ricky's been killed and you know there's that the best scene in the movie is is that where he goes into his dad's room he gets the gun he's gonna go with Doughboy they're gonna get these guys that killed Ricky and his dad stops him and he's like why don't you point that gun at me why don't you shoot me you're you know you're bad now right and you know Ricky ends up sneaking out and Furious is just sat there with the the Chinese stress ball yes and he's rolling them around his head and you can hear that still on the soundtrack as they cut back and forth between you know them in the car trying to find the guys that killed Ricky and then cutting back to Fury Furious when he sat there yeah uh, you know just feeling at a loss like I failed my son you know that that's me I don't I looked up Lawrence Fishburne's uh, I looked up his uh, how many times he's been nominated he didn't get any kind of real recognition for this role, which I think is a shame. I it, think it's it, it's it definitely Lawrence Fishburne's best performance, and I feel like maybe maybe there's uh, some buyer's remorse, because he did get the Academy Award a few years later for playing uh, Ike Turner. Yes, yeah. Again uh, with Angela Bassett, yep. uh, which is great. Yeah. And, and maybe that was them looking back at, you know, because there, there have been some instances where people have been denied a big award only to come back a couple of years later and get it for maybe something that they maybe didn't deserve as much as the the other thing. And yeah. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it for playing Ike Turner because he absolutely did. Sure. But another the instantly the thing I think of is Eastwood getting director for Million Dollar Baby, which I don't think anybody is going to debate is a far worse film than Mystic River, which is the film that he should have got. You know director so, for I, this is such a tangent, but we're gonna, it's, we're it's gonna a big go one. On yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't no, mean no, to no. Take us I, on this no, tangent, I'm gonna continue down it just for right. a second, which is, I feel like I've read more recently that people like Million Dollar Baby more than Mystic River. I don't understand. That. I don't either. Um, and I, I and I I do enjoy Million Dollar Baby, but I love Mystic River. Mystic River is a masterpiece. I I, I think that is the best thing Eastwood has ever directed. And I'm gonna throw that in with stuff. That I, I love, like Outlaw agree. Josie Wales and, I, you know, High Plains Drifter. and Mystic River is great. It's incredible. You know, I think the thing about this movie, too, is because it is such a character study in a way. It, it's a it's a study of this area that I found myself listening to the, the, the dialogue. So many lines stuck out more than maybe a normal film would. You know, any man with a dick can make a baby, but it takes a real man to raise his children. Oh, that's great. 
Oh, there's an oh, that's, that's one of my. I have that in my notes as well. That's one the, of my it, favorite lines. It's it's. I mean, it's it's yeah. It's a great it's a great line, and then everything to do, you know, you know, don't you should you know don't join the you know the the, the, the army. You know, it's it's which feels to me like another callback to Stand by Me because we talk about the scene where they're walking down the tracks. It's just River Phoenix and it's just Will Wheaton and Will Wheaton's about to give up on the writing and and Phoenix calls him out for it. There's that same kind of dynamic there where he's like, oh, I'm going to give up on the UCLA dream. I'm just going to join the army. Well, well, but first we get it from Lawrence Fishburne. Right. Who's saying, you know, that I served and don't do it. You know, don't you don't you don't need to join the army, you know. To, to not join the white man's army, basically, right. and then yeah, and then and then yeah, we cut to later, and Rick, uh, Ricky sees the commercial. Yeah, so it's implanted, and yeah, he's got that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Another, there's another sort of like 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 the stop sign. There's that moment where they go they go to get. It's right before Ricky gets killed, and he's doing the scratcher. He's he's doing the little lotto ticket on the uh, as he's, he's drinking his milk, and he's. He's doing the scratcher, and he, you know, any luck, and like, nope. And it's such, and it's like minutes away from what's going to happen. It's just such a like nice little piece of foreshadowing, like, oh, yeah. no, no luck, right? And then exactly, you know, to to dive on the, I do have to correct myself. I did say that uh, Lawrence Fishburne won the award in '94. He was just oh no, he didn't. No, yeah, he was only nominated. It was not, I'm surprised you didn't call me out on that. Oh no, I thought I thought you said he was only nominated. I th- oh I I thought I said we can go back and edit it or whatever, but I I think I said he won. Well, he was nominated. In for for well in ninety four for the movies for ninety three right right okay yeah no he lost to Tom Hanks for Philadelphia that year which nobody's gonna argue that that he won that Tom Hanks should have won it deserved to win okay oh you don't agree no I don't who should have won in ninety four then Liam Neeson for Schindler's List okay that's just me that that's a hard one to debate we're going on a tangent again. So this, this by the way, this podcast is all over the place. I'm basically just hitting the things that I, I either saw yeah. that really hit me or that I found out later that were really effective. And there's that scene where uh, all the cars are parked on Crenshaw, and they're uh, they're just it's just hanging out. They're just hanging yeah. out on the street. And then that one guy shoulder rams Ricky, and it becomes a thing. And Ice Cube shows him his gun, and they the that one the the one gang of people leave. And we we cut to the scene where. The, the guy that just shoulder ran Ricky fires an Uzi into the air, right? Yeah. And everybody scatters. What I found out, because I watched a documentary on the movie, is that John Singleton didn't tell the actors, A, when the machine gun was going to fire, and B, that it was going to sound as realistic as it did. And so the reactions you see are totally genuine because... because oh, I believe it. Well, and, and not only that, but like the DP of this film was talking about how um, like craft services and and the the trucks the trucks they used to transport all the equipment, they actually blocked off side streets because there were people threatening to shoot the people in this movie, and and so when the gun went off, I think it was a collection of acting and are we being shot at for real and yeah. that and that the scattering of everybody in that scene is so realistic. That like I'm kind of pissed at John Singleton that he did it, but it's also really effective. No, it's brilliant. it is it is like oh, wow, this is this is real. I mean, this is this is what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, that well, and that's absolutely the. I I think it's the right choice. It's in the oh, same way too. in the same way that Ridley Scott didn't tell anybody but John Hurt what was going to happen in the when alien. The alien yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because you can't. I mean, you could, but it's it's nice to have that degree of realism. Yeah. There's. 
there's a theater term, and I'm sure it's the same for film too, is the, the, the moment of the first time. Right, that yeah. we're trying to effectively convey that what we're doing is actually happening for the first time and that it's not been rehearsed for months. But when you can get to as close as that as possible, like leave that little bit out so that the reaction is genuine, it, it, it is great. It, it, it reads much more truthful, yeah. whether on stage or on screen. And that moment with the Uzis, with the Uzi being fired in the air, is, it's realistic. Oh, I wanted to circle back to the, uh, the UCLA cop. Uh, the UCLA um, recruiter, recruiter, uh, and the I, I I like I like that he's a nice just juxtaposition uh, for the own the the race the his the cop that is kind of hates his own race. Yes, right. Oh I, man, I, I think that's that's something that probably I, I, and maybe it had, but to me, I can't think of any earlier iterations where something like that was seen on film before. I I, I love that. I love that it's not just another white cop. Yeah, you know abusing his power but that we can see that that abuse of power comes from within your own race as well instead of being a positive role model yeah in the community this guy is just picking on these kids well and i, I like that it's the same cop both, oh yeah both when yeah. when when furious's house gets broken into and also when he when he ends up pulling over uh trey and ricky right right after the the uzi goes off um which is is a great the movie is going really well up until that point that's a great sequence the Bad music aside, the yeah. movie is going really well at that point, and then Trey comes home. He's, well, you know, he goes to... That's right, he goes to his girlfriend's yes. house, and he's all pissed off, and he's, like, punching the air, and he just wants to get out. He, he's, it's almost like he's suffocating. Like, he can't get out. By the way, John Singleton kept pushing him. to Like, he didn't believe it, didn't believe it, yeah. didn't believe it, and apparently right after, like... Because he's kind of swinging over the camera in that shot. At one point, he literally punched a hole in the set. That's brilliant. Yeah. They should have left, left, left that in. Pissed off he was, like, or like you know, like just like yeah. internally aggravated that he wasn't getting it right. So it was like oh, it was it was a mix of of the character and also Cuba Gooding Jr. just kind of getting upset with John Singleton. Which that's was, that's frustrating. They didn't knowing that that they didn't leave that in. Well, it might have been something that you couldn't have practically shown. Maybe, yeah. but that's great. But what undercuts that? Like I say, the movie's going really great at that point, and then you undercut it with this really poorly done sex scene with garbage music in it like that was a really bad choice there like i get that we're that you know trey is at that age and he's got a lot of sexual angst and you know he's of the three characters i mean he's really you know you've got doughboy who's just on the you know he's on the porch a lot with his friends and they're just shooting the shit and they live in the here and the now and they Mm -hmm. don't have any really forethought any forethought for even what the next week will look like and then you've got the Morris Chestnut character who is very career driven he knows what he wants in life and then you've got the Trey character who is it just seems to me he's a little there's some moments where his obsession with sex is almost two dimensional yeah well and I think that's I think it's that way in front of Doughboy because right. they, they, they kind of pressure him early on. Or like, you know, we saw you over at, at yeah. Brandy's house. Like, what'd you do? And, you know, and he he's like, whatever. Or, and, he, and he lies about he lies about the first time he has sex, right? right. He, that whole story about the girl and her family was, was at church or whatever. Like, that which, whole thing which, is which made is, up. Which I do like that. Because oh. that gives you a lot of insight into him. But there's other moments. And that, that sex scene is another thing that really undercuts it. It just feels underdeveloped. Oh, see, I disagree. It feels kind of half-baked to me. See, I, 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 think, I think he... I think he truly opens up in front of her, and I think that's what, in a way, that's what she wanted to see. Like, you know, he ends up, like, as he's holding on to her, he says, like, I, you know, I didn't want to cry in front of you. And she goes, you can cry in front of me. And I think, 
I think we do earn it. I think we we get that there's a past between them that he hasn't been talking to her. And part of that is because she's not putting out, which, of course, is ridiculous. And that's stupid high school stuff. That right. Unfortunately, it was true in 91. It was true in 05 when we were graduating. And I know it's probably true now. It's We put a lot on sex for no reason. Right. I just maybe and, – and you're right, but I just wish it had been done – better i guess I the mean, execution just, of the actual sex poor. scene is yeah it's right and i'm not saying oh there should be more nudity or oh, no, on any no. longer like that but it's just it's really badly lit yeah it is so the music really lets this i keep coming back to that the music just really lets this film down and i'll call out the guy who did the music stanley clark the only other things that i saw on his resume that even jumped out to me was undercover brother and romeo must die yeah the, the gently film i don't this I don't know how much of this is John Singleton putting that pressure on him to have that jazzy score that you mentioned that was maybe influenced by Lethal Weapon. Yeah. But it's just, it's a really awful score that undercuts a really great film. Yeah. At any chance it gets. Well, and he, you know, it's his, it's his, you know, it's his first shoot, you know, and I, I mean, I'm surprised more didn't go wrong. And, and not for any other reason than it's a first movie. Yeah. And he was, I mean... This is, I mean, there's a lot of time in between these two movies, but we talked about Badlands, and that movie was made for $300,000. Yeah. That's, that's nothing. Yeah. This had $6.5 I mean, you were able to get Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett in this movie. There's a lot of pressure. I don't want to take anything from uh, away from Singleton. Oh, no, no, I, no, I imagine oh. the pressure is incredible. Oh, no, oh, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. I'm surprised more didn't go wrong. On a first-time director with a big budget, you know. I mean, it, John Singleton actually said he heavily relied on Lawrence Fishburne for advice, inspiration. He he asked quite he asked him a lot of questions about what it was like to work with Coppola back in Apocalypse Now. I mean, Lawrence Fishburne was the seasoned person in this film, and John Singleton kept coming back to it. I mean, even the cast... They're and, definitely and, worse mentors to have. Oh, sh- well, sure. And the cast... I mean, Singleton was the director, but... Lawrence Fishburne was the rock of this movie, yeah. both on screen and off screen. And that's and that's what's disappointing that he didn't get more attention for it. I, it's his gentrification speech. Oh my god, that is it brings the house down. Yeah, as far as this film is concerned, it's incredible. And the way that the way he has all these these young people gathering around yeah. him is almost like he's giving a sermon. Like he owns that scene. I we always talk about what our favorite scenes in the movie are, and it's it's hard because I as a, as the as a appreciator of film. I always tend to think of the the scenes that look great cinematically. Like for me, that favorite shot in the movie is when we we, we when Cuba Gooding Jr. yells Ricky and he turns around and then it's in it, the sound cuts out and it's slow motion. Like that is just that's that's it. Yeah. But then you know I'm an actor. I've been doing this since I was ten. You know, acting is my thing. And so when I look at performance wise, the gentrification speech from Lawrence Fishburne in that movie is it's the best for me. It's the best acting scene yeah. in the movie. So I, there's usually going to be two answers for me, and, and those are my answers for this Yeah, one. the gentrification, I agree with you on that one, and then the other one is the, the haircut scene. That's a good one, too. As well, where, you know, will you, will you fix my fade? My fade, yeah. And then he's telling the story uh, to his dad, you know, lying about the first time that he had sex. Yeah. Right, and getting caught by the, the grandma or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. That's, I, that's, that really sells it. Like I said, we mentioned earlier that there's not a huge age gap between uh, Fishburne and, and Gooding Jr. There's only seven years, but that really sells it whatever there was that scene there's just there's magic between those two the chemistry is incredible yeah it's it's palpable so you know we, we've mentioned a lot about this movie and does this movie belong in the book despite the awful score 
I, I'll leave it in. I think it's it's really important, and it's very timely. I mean, this film came out right before. We didn't even mention Rodney King. It hadn't happened yet. Right. Yep. So, I mean, how timely was that? It should be in the book because it's an important film and because it's it's well made. Score aside, you know, you got to appreciate the performances. I mean, and how many people's first performances this was? That's impressive. This was a yep. cast of mostly new actors grounded by... Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett, who were wonderful in this movie. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's, again, it's not a movie that you can just, you won't just throw on. But it's a good movie, and it's an important watch. It's, it's something I would mention probably in the same breath as American History X. Yeah, totally. I, I think those, it would make for an interesting double feature. Yeah. Certainly, when you're, when you're talking about, you know, people forced to choose between worlds and making those hard decisions about what do I want my legacy to be. Yeah. Right. The final, my final thought though, the end titles. Really don't like them. I don't, I don't need to know what happens to these boys. I, I understand from the conversation that Trey and Doughboy have. I mean, it's fairly obvious to me that Doughboy's not going to change. He's going to end up dead. And he, thankfully, I mean, it, I mean, it takes the, sac- the 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 murder of his best friend. But this is really going to put Trey on the right path. He's going to get out, and he's going to make something of himself. And the conversation between them says it all. And my one of my favorite little details is uh, Ice Cube pouring out what's left in the forty yep. as he walks away. So that that to me, the the titles kind of ruin it there for me. I don't. I don't need that to tell me what's going to happen to these boys. I get it. I, I think, I mean, I, I agree, but I think that that's an issue I have more with with films and gen- films that are... They need to put a they need to put a, a full stop, like a period what's, at it, the end of it to, say, not, to solidify this is what happens. But it's not even just that. Like, when it when it's a movie that's been based on a, on a real thing, like, like The Post, which is just a more recent example of that. Right, because you can't get everything. You need a little yeah, bit you of... Get, but you, but you want to know what actually happened to right. these real people and these real events. And that's not to take away the realness of Boys in the Hood, but these aren't real people. They're inspired by real people, but they're not real people. Any movie that's fictional, that, that, that's, that's made up, even though it might be inspired by real things, but it's, it's a totally made up, yeah. made up characters, that, that wants to still, like, you know, five years later, this happened... Why do that? Yeah. It, I mean, it's not real anyway, so I don't need to know how it continued to f- just end the movie. Even one of my favorite films of all time, American Graffiti, does that, and it irritates the living hell out of me. Because it's unnecessary. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not really a fault of Boys in the Hood. It's a fault of movies that choose to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, Again, the, the folly of youth with, with Singleton there, I think. Sure. So, there you go. We both uh, believe that this movie should be in the book. We want to know what you think. Um, so, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Please let us know, do you think this movie should be in the book or not? You can find us on Google Play and Spotify and iTunes. iTunes is great. You can rate and review us. Yeah, we would love your feedback. That's a yes. Yep. Cool. Yep. Thank you for listening in. Yep. I'm Ian Woodington. I'm Adam St. John. And we will see you next week.